Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are speaking with M. Sanjan, the CEO of Conservation International. Born in Sri Lanka, raised in West Africa, educated in the UK and the US, Sanjan has seamlessly blended a lifelong passion for nature, in education and science, a powerful gift to storytelling, and a commanding global presence to become one of the world's most foremost experts on securing nature for the future of humanity. In today's episode, we will discuss in greater detail Sanjan's passion to secure nature for the future of humanity. We also will look into the future as Sanjan will share some insights about what is over the horizon for nature, each of us, and our communities. Sanjan, welcome to Voices of Nature. Thank you, Bob. Great to be here. Great introduction, by the way. Well, th thank you. I don't think I did it justice, but hopefully oh. it started the conversation. So I, maybe with that being said, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and, and what helped instill this lifelong passion for nature? Wow. So for that, I think I have to go a long way back. You know, when I was about five years old, my parents moved us from Sri Lanka to Sierra Leone because things were pretty bad for them in Sri Lanka because of uh, ethnic conflicts actually going on there that, that, that continued, continued for many decades. And you got to remember how bad it must have been for these folks to pick up from, from uh, Sri Lanka and the escape valve was West Africa. And it wasn't just the city, we were in the interior of Sierra Leone. We were 200 miles away from the capital city at the time, a very small sort of forest and mining town. And my dad went there to work for a forestry company. And, you know, this company would go into the forests of West Africa, some of the most biodiverse forests in the world, and they would cut trees. And the amazing thing is, as a child, you know, you'd never had a real sense of what was being lost. It just felt endless. The, the forest came right up to the little house we lived in, and it, it, it really did feel endless at the time. And I remember going occasionally on a logging truck and hearing one tree get cut down. Like, so they'd work on this thing for all day and then you'd hear this gigantic thunderous crash in the forest. And then I would be allowed to get to the tree and it would be enormous. Like, ooh, the diameter of it would be, you know, so big that only one could fit on the truck. And I would run along the trunk of it to the canopy which was now, you know, lying down on the ground, and I would find animals there, you know, chameleon snakes, you know, once a, a very small primate called a, a potto, which is just a very cool little animal, and things like that, which I would collect and bring home, and eventually my parents would release them. And this is what I did, and I loved doing it. And I, and I remember back those days. So, you know, my love for nature comes from my very, very beginning, my very earliest memories as a child. But it wasn't a sense of conservation or protecting it. It was just a fascination with anything that moved. Later on, you know, as one keeps taking one foot, you know, in front of the other, you know, this developed into Korea. But, but it really came from a position of love. I mean, the, the kind of amazing thing about this story, which only later in life, much, much later in life, I, I figured out, was this little town that I was growing up in was the very place that David Attenborough gets his start in conservation. 
So the very first time you see David Attenborough on television is in Sierra Leone, very, very close to where I grew up. And the weirdest thing was that as a child, you know, my my dad got the very first like Planet Earth series that he did. I think he bought it like a secondhand or pirated VHS tapes. There were seven tapes. I remember this. And, you know, I, I'm at this point now, we weren't living in that town anymore, but we're still in West Africa. And I'd watch these these tapes of Attenborough doing Planet Earth and thinking, my God, what an amazing guy. And look at all these amazing places he's going to. And I didn't realize that like he started where I started, which is to this moment, I find unbelievable um, just as a story. So, right. So long story short, my passion for conservation came from like the very beginning. So after all of that uh, and all of your education, you, you wound up at Conservation International. Yes. Tell us a little bit about CI, the work it does, and, and we have a few more questions for you on CI. But just, you know, first, just kind of ground us in what CI is, what it does, and, you know, what its areas of focus are. Sure. So I came to the United States, got my PhD here in, in conservation biology, worked with an amazing professor by the name of uh, Michael Soule, who kind of invented the word. He's, he sort of coined the word conservation biology, wrote the first, edited the first textbook that had conservation biology in the title, and then went to the World Bank for a little bit and then went to the Nature Conservancy for a long career there, and then eventually joined Conservation International about eight years ago. And then about six and a half years ago, when the founder of Conservation International, Peter Seligman, stepped down, he and the board, after a long search process, asked me to help lead the organization. So I've been CEO for about six and a half years. So CI has been around for about 35 years. And I think what attracted me to Conservation International was that probably two things. Number one, it only worked in the global south. So I felt like this was an organization that was willing to work in the hardest of places. Not that every place doesn't deserve conservation and protection, but there are many, many good organizations doing great work, say, in, you know, the Rocky Mountains or in California or in the Midwest. But there's very few that are able to do work at scale in West Africa, for example, or in Bolivia, uh, or in Cambodia. And this is where CI focused its work on. So I like that. I like the Global South aspect of it, um, the exclusiveness of Global South. I also like the fact that from the very beginning, Conservation International had people in its mission. So, you know, very simply put, I would say we protect nature for people. Now, today, I think most conservation organizations accept this in some fashion. But for us, it, it is really at the very heart of what we do, because in these very tough places to work in, unless it is, as our founder puts it, in the enlightened self-interest of people who live there, indigenous people, local communities, local governments, it's not going to last. And so if you want conservation to last in Liberia, if you want conservation to last in Brazil, if you want it to last in Indonesia, in Timor-Leste, if you want it to last in these places, then the people who live there need to understand why it really adds value to their lives. So that's what I've, I've done. Now, I'd say there are two other reasons why since then, I've come to really appreciate what this organization does. And, and one is, I think, our team. I think our team is really, really an exceptional team. We have some extraordinary people. And I've never once gone to the field and seen our work in the field and not come back completely, not just impressed and amazed, but re-energized by what I've seen. Re, you know, re-hopeful. Is that a word? Reinvigorated with hope. 
And then the second is our board. I think we have we have the best board out there. They're extraordinary individuals who could do anything in the world, and they choose to devote their time and their energy with us. And I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on those last two points because I think that is such a kind of intriguing aspect of, of CI where, you know, you, you're on the global stage, right? And I, I'm not under underestimating that, underselling that at all, right? You are, you essentially function as a head of state when you're at, when you're at some of these events like COP and next month at Davos, the World Economic Forum meeting at Davos. You, as you just said, you have this incredibly powerful board. I mean, these truly, truly prominent people who are, you know, dedicating frankly, a good portion of their life to the work of Conservation International. Yet, you have this team in the field, you know, who day in and day out are on the front lines of saving nature. Like, how how do you balance all that? Like, how do you, you know, motivate the board, yet motivate the team in the field because they really have two very different objectives? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, I'd say I, I'm, I'm absolutely not a head of state, and I, am, I, I absolutely recognize that. I am on stage with heads of state frequently and, and meet with heads of state frequently, um, you know, so that, so the proximity to, to power is there, but it's a very different kind of power that we each have. Um, and I'm glad for that, but that, that what they do is, is truly difficult. But your question, you know, the bigger question you, you know, you're asking is that it's a great question. You know, look, I'm always amazed. I'm, I'm honestly always amazed when I meet people who want to put their effort, their money, their time into CI. <laughs> and I'm amazed at that because, you know, like for me, like there's almost nothing else I could see myself doing. But, you know, the folks we have who are on our council, who are on our board, who are our supporters, they could do many, many, many things. They do do many, many things. And it's always incredible to me that they would take some of that time and give it to us, give it to me, give it to this cause. I still can't reconcile that. It is, I always pinch myself. I always do. And I'm incredibly grateful uh, for the gifts that they give me of, of time, of resources, of access, of influence, of intellectual uh, stimulation and all of the above. You know, I think that what I would say is that, you know, Harrison Ford, who's been part of CI for a very long time and is our vice chair, you know, said to me, and said this publicly, I think, that outside of his family, this is the thing that brings him the greatest amount of sort of joy. And, and that's, I, I buy that. Like, you know, these are people who could do anything and buy anything. And here's what I would say. I don't think they ever regret what they do for conservation. You know, look, in my own life, there's many, many things that I can regret <laughs> spending time on, buying or, you know, participating in. But, but, you know, giving to this, this kind of cause is, is not one of it. And I think that's what a lot of the board members feel when they see the impact of our work. We also leverage our work so amazingly. Like, this is not an org with deep pockets. It might seem that way if you're a small organization. I can see why we are seen as a big org. But we don't have an endowment to speak of or, you know, nothing bigger than 1% of my budget or less. You know, we, we spend the money we have right then and there in conservation. So we run a fairly lean ship. And what we are really good at is taking, you know, that limited amount of capital and really leveraging it many, many times over. And that's quite exciting to see. Now, in the field, you know, it's a, it's a little different. You know, I think that the people in the field 
you know, do see the work and do see the impact of their work. I think the hard thing is to give them, you know, enough. Sometimes it's slow, right? There, like there are many projects that we're doing now that has taken six, seven years to finally get to the scale that we want it to be. And that's, that takes, you, you've got to find ways to motivate your team to think big picture and to think long term and to go faster than they're ever ready to go. So, yeah, it's, it's a tricky question, Bob. Like, to be honest, it's not a simple, you know, I guess the best way I would say it is that that's probably the most interesting part of my job is that I have one foot in each camp. So in any given day, I could be talking to someone in the field on the very front lines of conservation you know, driving a boat in, in East Timor doing like anti-poaching patrols or something like that. And then the next minute I could be talking to a heads of state or a corporate CEO or someone on our board. And, and that always gives me a great thrill. So that amazing answer prompts two questions for me. So the, the first is, you made a comment about your board that frankly gets to the heart of, of this podcast, which is, you know, just the love of nature that people have and then the sacrifices they're they're willing to make. And you you made this comment that your board members have never regretted being on the board of CI working for nature. Like, why, why do you think that's the case? I mean, you know, when you're talking about Harrison Ford, we are talking about the Harrison Ford, right? And, and the, your other board members are of that same stature. What is it that brings them that joy to, to be working for nature? This is probably be a better question to ask them, right? It's 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 a bit presumptuous for me to say this, but I can only intuit like what I've seen. You know, some of it is true for any organization working in this space. So I don't think it's unique to us. I think these folks understand the big picture. They see the world. They see the shape of the world. They see the trajectory. And they're looking for meaning. They're looking for a way in which they can have a measurable impact and they're choosing us, they're choosing other causes as well to do that. I think that is just a general truism, right? Like if you mean just look at, think about your own life and think about, you know, what are the charities you're going to donate to, you know, this year? Like, I don't think you're going to go and say, well, yeah, that was probably a dumb donation. Like, like it just doesn't happen very often. You know, most of the time, if you do a little bit of due diligence, you're going to end up supporting causes that like are doing amazing things. So I think part of it is that, part of it is that this niche, which when you and I got into this, you know, this whole notion about nature and conservation, I mean, my God, you know, my advisor invented the word conservation biology. This is not exactly a very old field, right? Like in my childhood, like I thought the forest was endless. And guess what? The West African forests today are like literally one of the rarest types of tropical rainforests left in, on the planet. So this change has happened very quickly. This is not like an industry that's been around for hundreds of years. This is brand new. So, you know, you see this change, but all of a sudden now it's on the front lines. Like it is every day you'll see stories about what we care about every day, every day, you know, every news platform that you think about. And, you know, you imagine going to COP and we have 88,000 people at this last COP and virtually every head of state, head of state the 200 countries participating. It's kind of now a big, I mean, it's a big deal. So, you know, here's this niche cause when we started and maybe when many of these folks got kind of engaged in it. Now it's become one of the most central issues of our time and certainly the most central issue of our children's and our grandchildren's time. So if you were, you know, one of these amazing people who had 
wealth or who had influence or who had particular knowledge and you wanted to give, you want to get behind something, this is probably a pretty good one to get behind. So that's what I would say generally for this field. Now, more specifically for our organization, I think there are a couple of things that we do do differently. I think we have a very distinct culture. And I think that culture feels very tight. And, you know, our board meetings often end in hugs. Like it's, I don't mean to say it's, it's all fantastically joyous, but there is a sense of family. And this is an organization that sticks together. And I think that sense of community is very much missing in this world. So I would suspect if you are a donor or, a, you know, someone wants to get involved, Conservation International would provide the kind of community that would be a fun, interesting, caring community, empathetic community that you would want to be part of. And then the second piece of this is that, you know, at the end of the day, we have to deliver impact. And I think we do. And I think we do it honestly. And I think when we fail, we own up to it. So I think that the folks who do get involved don't regret that involvement, not because we don't mess up, but we have a level of transparency and and communication with the people we who entrust us with their resources that I think it really does feel like a shared cause. So now go to the other end of the spectrum because you you also previously made this really interesting comment about, you know, it's part of your job to collaborate with the team in the field to you know, help them go faster than they think they can go. What in kind of in practical terms, I mean, when a, when someone, when a scientist or biologist is in the field working on a project, what does that mean? What does it mean that make help them think that they can go faster than they can go? Yeah, that's a much harder question, much harder problem. It's almost at the root of like the challenges we face right now as an organization, and I, I don't know if others do as well, but this is certainly a major challenge for us. So nothing can scale if it doesn't go fast. I, I don't know really anything that has scaled slowly. Like, I'm sure there are one or two things, but generally, it's not how you're going to scale. It's not how a company would think about scaling. Like a horse race with the exponential forces of evil. That's the only way I could put it, right? So we don't have to just go fast. we got to go ever faster if we're going to deal with the twin threats of climate change and biodiversity loss and really have, you know, a chance in hell of reversing that. So the need for speed is great. However, we tend to hire people who are deeply committed to a cause and who are deep subject material experts. And that's a challenge because the people we typically tend to have tend to be perfectionists. So they err on getting it absolutely right because the training is that way, because they've mostly come out of academia or come out of sort of deep technical expertise. And now they're in a different kind of job. They're in like mass manufacturing. And I think that's the hard leap that we are trying to make right now as an organization. So if you go in the field and you look at the work we've done over the over the years, you know, to get down deep enough, you will see it's incredible work. It's work that has required unique sets of knowledge and unique ability to perfect something, often working in very difficult conditions. The challenge we face now is that we got to do this just so much faster. And I don't mean just a little faster, I mean so much faster. And that means almost always 
erring on the side of speed over, over, look, you know, someone asked me this question. I, I want to be careful because I don't want to give the wrong impression, but someone said, if you have to pick between quality and speed, which one would you pick? And I said, like every time I would pick speed, not because I don't think quality is important. I think it's very important, but I think that most of our team members will automatically control for quality. So for me, we got to go fast. I got to push for speed. What does that look like in the field? Look, I'll tell you one, you know, we've been working on this idea in South Africa around changing the way people graze, communities graze land and creating a real incentive for them to graze better in order to add carbon and add biodiversity to the landscapes and then provide better market access to them and for their products. It's a very slow program and they've perfected it. Like literally like I can, I can tell you the crazy stories where they like the number of failures it took for them to get it sort of, sort of right. Then in about a period of a year, we've decided now to take this program that is essentially perfected in South Africa and spread it to five countries. So now we're talking about something like 20 million acres of land, 30,000 communities. I mean, that it's not just going to like, the neighboring place. It's now going to like Mozambique and Botswana and, you know, Zimbabwe and Zambia and Angola. Like it's big. So that leap is hard, right? That, I mean, it means new partnerships, working with others to, to implement on the ground. It means different kinds of funding. It really does mean different kinds of folks. And so you either have to help our team develop the skills to be able to do that, add to their teams, or find people who can do that. Like all of those are, are, very painful challenges to have. If you are a nonprofit, right, the easiest thing in the world is to stay a nonprofit. Like it's like stasis is actually quite easy in the nonprofit world. Growth tends to be just incremental. Basically, growth is almost perfectly correlated with philanthropic dollars. So one dollar more means, you know, one acre more or one tree more or whatever. It's it's like a linear thing. So if this year I'm, I'm, you know, let's pretend my budget is a million dollars and next year my budget is 1.1 million, well, I'll do 1.1 more, you know, I'll do that. I'll do 10% more than I did last year. That's basically how it does. We can't do that anymore. And so that's where we got to break that. We got to break this linearity between like what we raise and what we do. We got to do just a ton more and obviously raise more, but we got to just do a ton more. Is that mindset of, you know, doing a ton more, you know, scaling at speed, no time to lose. Is that like really starting to sink in now with, you know, global leaders, you know, heads of state, secretaries of state, CEOs, like that type, like, are they, are they now moving beyond, you know, the lip service to, of climate change and biodiversity loss? And do you feel that they are taking action at a, at a rate or now wanting at least to take action at a rate that will allow this scaling that's so important to happen? I think yes and no. I still think they're an order of magnitude off from the size of the problem. So they're definitely thinking much bigger, but they're still like an order of magnitude off, right? So I don't know. I'm not answering your question exactly with a yes or no. It's sort of a yeah, but not enough. I think the the more pointed answer is that I think most of them can see this. They just don't have the pathway for it. Like, it's almost like the last couple of years, the world has called our bluff. 
So we had a pretty remarkable agreement in Montreal, like a year, year and a half ago, where we had something like 190 countries basically agree that 30% of the planet, land and water, is going to be protected. And we had this whole high seas treaty thing where we basically had 77 countries basically say, yeah, the high seas need to be protected and we need a mechanism for doing that. These global agreements, for the most part, seem to be coming through. Even, even this COP, which really wasn't, I mean, my expectations were all over the place, you know, really has come, come through in Dubai as a, as a landmark COP. So it's almost as if these presidents and world leaders are saying, yep, okay, you win. We agree. We got to do a lot. Now tell us how. And that's where, that's where the challenge is. That's where the challenge is, right? Because the nonprofit sector has just not tooled itself up to do this. So, you know, funny way, I'd say that our big challenge is not that we're, I mean, yes, we don't have enough funding to do what we want to do. Please don't get me wrong. But the challenge is not funding. The challenge is having the scalable idea and the ability to execute quickly. And that is far more frightening than not having the money. Not having the money was almost like an excuse. Yeah, look, you know, I could save the world too. Guess what? I don't have enough money. It's almost like I go home, do my job. I come to work, do my job, go home and sort of moan about the same thing. It's kind of changed now. Now I'm, now I go home and I'm, I'm truly scared, right? Because now I'm asked to come up with something that, look, I'm a geneticist by training this. Like the idea of, of knowing how to scale something is, is really quite unique and not something that I was trained to do. You make a great point about the money job, right? I mean, that is, on one hand, that is the one part of the equation that is has scaled, right? I mean, 10 years ago, we were talking about millions of dollars. Five years ago, maybe we're talking hundreds of millions. Now we could be talking about billions or trillions of dollars going into, should we just say, greening the economy or protecting nature? Yeah, but only in a different, but, but not philanthropic. Money going in through different vehicles. So, like I'd say, the biggest chunk of work that we're doing now in terms of like land mass impact, either is public sort of funding or kind of leverage funding or it's it's investments. So we have this very unique partnership, BTG Park Trail, one of the biggest investment banks in Latin America for restoration. That's a return seeking fund that uh, gives a return to the investor but also does restoration on the ground. You know, we do similar things with Apple and with Goldman Sachs. So there's like different sources of money coming in. Philanthropic money, which we absolutely need because it's what, it's what pay, it's, it's what sort of keeps everything lubricated. It's what like takes the heat off, right? I mean, like you need that. That actually hasn't kept pace, which is quite shocking to me. Like I, I'm sure this is true, but like any nonprofit in conservation out there, or frankly, in any field out there, if they, if they looked at who they were getting money from and asked, like, if those people, if our donors had just given us shares of stocks of their companies and just kept giving us the same number of shares, I bet you they'll be 10 times bigger today than if they just gave dollars, right? That's a bit depressing. You, okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there is plenty of capital to be deployed or is already being deployed yeah. on behalf of nature, but the resources aren't there, should we say, on the operational side of things to bring, to actually bring that capital to places where it will have the most impact. Am I yeah. correct in that? Yeah. Yeah. So there's money sloshing around the system, but it's not necessarily getting to the right things fast enough. 
And the reason partly for that is because the private philanthropic money that could be used to either de-risk or to develop those projects at scale isn't there yet. And it's a very well put point. So like our philanthropic money is being used to de-risk and to develop projects at scale, which, which gives you like three, four, five X money flowing in from other sources, often institutional money. So if I had more private philanthropic money, I could do more of that. And, and that's, that is definitely a bottleneck. So it's really, it's really looking for that first tranche of money to go to a project. Let's just say, uh, you know, a forest, you know, restoration project of some kind where CI or a donor would come in and fund the first, whatever, hundred million of it to get the project up and running. So it becomes investment ready for the for-profit investors. Is that great way of putting it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And not only for for-profit investors, it could also be for, you know, for other reasons as well. It could be for institutional money. It could be for I don't know, green climate fund projects. It could be for EU projects. You know, it could be for multilateral, bilateral type of projects as well. Uh, for debt for nature swaps, right? So they, there's there are ways in which you can fund projects in conservation at scale today that isn't being deployed because you probably don't have enough early capital, which needs to be very flexible and risk-taking to be able to either de-risk or to try or to project develop. Right, because all the follow-on investors have, most of them, I should say, have some kind of legal requirement, fiduciary requirement that they have to, they have to operate at some kind of rate of return. They're not just throwing money at the project, so they need sure. someone to. Sure, and even if it's not return-seeking money like multilateral funding, it still has requirements that are difficult, to, you know, to just overcome. So what I mean, I guess, how do we accelerate this? more, should we say, philanthropic capital coming into the system? I mean, what's the, is there a, a solution or a fix to this? Wait, is there a fix? You know, I think part of it is that philanthropy, you know, needs to take more risks. And it, it's still incredibly risk averse. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the people behind the philanthropies, you know, either historically or currently, took gigantic risks in their own lives. And yet, once they decide to give the money, they want certainty. It's, it's, it's a very, very interesting conundrum. If you actually look at the folks and the kinds of risks that they took in order to develop their company or they develop their wealth or do whatever they did to make themselves lucky enough to be called philanthropists, and then looked at what they then did with the philanthropic dollars, it, it really doesn't, it, it's really a mismatch. And that is a pervasive thing that goes into our, our fields. You know, we all want to just, boy, I mean, I deal with this all the time, right? So new donor comes in, gives us money, and I'm thinking, God, you know, I want to do something that is like 100% likely to succeed so that I can make sure that they have confidence in us and they'll go back and do it again. Instead, I should be thinking, my God, where can I try something? He's a new donor, so I'm not going to lose anything if I actually try something. May not work. But wouldn't it be better to do that? But the, the thinking just doesn't go that way. The funny thing is that in the investment world, this happens all the time. So you see investments that disappear up in smoke all the time. And those same people go back out and raise more capital. It's, it's probably because they're feeding on a different part of the human psyche, whereas they're feeding on greed, we're feeding on charity. And uh, I think there are different parts of our brain that control for each one. 
Well, let's shift gears a little bit, Sanjan, on a very personal level. You know, take us into that one, you know, special moment in nature that, you know, you alluded to a little bit, maybe when you were a kid, but, you know, when you close your eyes, like what's that one memory of nature that always comes to your mind and inspires you even, even on those days when you're feeling a little down and discouraged about how things are going? You know, the funny thing is my brain doesn't work that way. You know, I don't have that idyllic scene in back of my head. I think that, you know, I have a four, four and a half year old daughter. I think as she grows up and I create more nature memories with her, there'll be moments like that, that will really be the filter. But I, I was, you know, we were very late parents. And so I don't have that as the, so the grounding, I, I can't relate that to my, my parents because I left home when I was very, very young. And so I didn't have, you know, that kind of my, my, my relationships, my family were not nature-based, I would say. It's surprising, but I get enormous amounts of resonance from whatever was the most recent place that I went to. You know, I was just at this enormous climate conference, you know, COP28, 88,000 people there. It was it's hard work. The team worked hard. I think I worked hard. I was there for like seven days. And on the very last day, I think eight, eight days, on the very last day, I got to go birding for a couple of hours in uh, in the mangroves off UAE. And I was really looking forward to that. You know, this bird book showed up on my front door. And when I looked at my whole agenda for the cop, that's this thing. And the fact that I could pack my binoculars for the strip was really, you know, kind of important. So for me, you know, it's that time that I touch the water and I feel the feel the air and I see something cool. I can I can use that. That that's enough to hold me till the next till the next episode. Well said. So uh, you once said, and this is the last question, you, you once recently said something actually that really stuck with me. You, you remarked that with all the technology at hand, we can see over the horizon with a great deal of precision about what nature will look like. And you were, you seemed very optimistic in how and why you said that. So kind of despite all this doom and gloom, you know, we encounter every day around nature What's allowed you to see over the horizon to make you excited about the future of nature? The thing that is most exciting right now is that, you know, there is a big asset class. There's, you know, we, 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 we're sort of learning that this whole idea that we would balance human needs with the needs of nature is just a false dichotomy. It, it, it's, it's one that we could never win. And I think we lulled ourselves with small victories, believing that that's what, that's what, what our mission ought to be. And it should never be had been that. That is not how humans evolved on this planet. We evolved on this planet by understanding our interdependence with nature, that our prosperity is linked to nature's prosperity, and nature's prosperity in some ways is linked to us. I think it's the linking of production and protection, the linking of nature's needs and human needs, and that, that cycle that that provides that really can accelerate the protection of nature. Look, when I was an undergrad, you know, I went to Oregon and I remember back in the late eighties, you know, there were these big timber wars going on in Oregon. So they were cutting down the forest very, very fast by lots of timber companies. The spotted owl had been discovered and these environmentalists were campaigning like town by town, trying to get these towns to stop logging in their jurisdictions. And they knew they were never really successful. Because voter after voter, town after town came in favor of logging because brilliantly, deviously, the logging industry had tied 
their revenue to the revenue of the schools in these rural districts. So if you were a parent and you had your kid in school and you knew that they were cutting down the forest and the forest would be gone, you, you cared, but you didn't care enough to do anything for four years until your kid was out of school. And then the next set of parents made the same decision and so on and so forth. And so you'd be in these little towns and you'd look literally around the town and every hillside was bare. So it's not like they couldn't see what was going to happen. They could, but they were willing to kick the can down the road because it was in their own self-interest to do that. Finally, today, we're playing that game in reverse. We're now linking protection of nature to production. We're now saying these landscapes in North Sumatra or in, you know, in East Africa are so important for the well-being of these people and for the economic well-being, the bioeconomy of the Amazon. You know, you say you want to protect the Amazon. Well, there are 50 million people living in the Amazon basin. You better create a bioeconomy. Otherwise, you're not actually going to protect the Amazon in the long run. Now, if you can link those two, then you've hit the holy grail. Now you have a way of using what we're always seen as the forces opposed to conservation, now they, they, they align on our side. And that is the most exciting thing that I can see uh, on the horizon. That's a great way to end the conversation, Sanjan. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy. Uh, you just got back from a very, very long trip. So thank you very much. You're welcome, Bob. Thank you.